Amorim has gone from a B-side coach to one of Portugal's hottest commodities in just two years. How did he do it and why is he so highly sought after? Also, this week saw the anticlimactic curtain drop, I think is a fair adjective to use, on one of the most enigmatic manager club pairings in recent football history. But what made Marcelo Bielsa's lead side so special? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Tactics Room presented by Brick and Alliance. My name is Will Fowler. I am, of course, your host. And I'm so happy that you're willing to spend a few minutes with me to chat here about some of the most interesting and intriguing and objectively cool stories uh, in the football world today. So happy you're here. Happy European competition uh, knockout stage season to all. I uh, hope you're all enjoying it. I think so long as you're not a PSG supporter, you are enjoying it. Um, some really fantastic ties so far, and it will only continue to get better. And I hope you're all just doing well. Hope you're all just having good days, having good weeks, and it's, it's all about it's all about the good vibes here at the Tactics Show. Leave all, that, leave all that negative stuff at the door. It's, all, it's only good things here, as always. Uh, if you're a returning listener, uh, you're a legend. But if you're a new listener, welcome. Thrilled you're here. Stay on. Uh, on the rundown for today is arguably Portugal's next major import, but it isn't even a player. It's a coach, and his name is Ruben Amorim. In just two years, he's both transformed this sporting side and emerged as one of the brightest young coaches in the entire world. We'll chat a little bit about him and his tactics, and we'll also chat about an outgoing manager, Marcelo Bielsa at Leeds United. That mad- that marriage came to an end recently in his place, of course, the American. Jesse Marsh, wish him all the success in the world until he guides us to a 2026 World Cup uh, victory. But the response to Bielsa's exit was overwhelmingly supportive of uh, a manager stuck in a relegation fight. It was uh, not... Not It did not accurately reflect where Leeds were sitting in the table. But if you've been following this pairing for a while, you know that that's not a huge surprise. We'll chat about Bielsa and why he's left such an indelible mark on Leeds United. And Bet the Bank is back. Uh, the OG listeners remember Bet the Bank from way back in the early days of this podcast. We've strayed away from it a little bit recently, but we're back today with a fantastic young talent that you're not going to want to miss. So strap in because we've got a, a, a thrilling thrilling if i can say so myself a thrilling episode 14 on tap um so let's get right into it then with ruben amorim and a sporting cp side that for just the second time in the club's history reached the champions league knockout stage and for many casual fans that was their introduction to ruben amorim this 38 year old manager but his story dates back much further because three years ago uh amorim was managing braga's b-side and now he's regarded as potentially football's next super coach a strong link to the manchester united drop once ralph reinick takes his position in the club hierarchy and all around gathering headlines in uh in uh, at sporting. Now, one of the things that makes Amorim so interesting and, and such a, a fascinating story, among many, he, he's a, a, the the story behind Ruben Amorim is, is really intriguing. But one of the one of the most interesting bullet points is that this is not just a man who, prior to uh, signing for Sporting, had no emotional connection to the club. He actually is a former player and a diehard supporter of Benfica, who are a direct rival of Sporting. He played at Benfica 
Uh, Benfica's supporters will tell you he was good, but not great. Uh, played for Portugal in the 2010 and 2014 World Cups, made some caps for his national team. Um, he finally retires and goes into coaching at a club named Cathapia in 2018, but uh, is suspended for a year uh, because he doesn't have the proper coaching license. Uh, Cathapia takes a points deduction. Um, uh, Amarim ends up resigning. But that's the, the beginning of this this managerial career that he hopes to embark on, this bumpy up and down. It's it's not the best way to, to kick off. I suppose in a certain way, there's really only one direction you can go after you get suspended and you're, you you force your club to take a points deduction because you don't have proper documentation. But um, for Amadim, that's it's not the greatest way to start a managerial career. And so he, he gets suspended for that year. He gets his coaching license. He has his choice of clubs to coach next. Um and Benfica are interested. He, he's considering going and, and joining Benfica, but um, he also knows that there, there's so, some political disadvantage at, at Benfica. He knows that the board is very involved in the way that, that a team is to be structured and players that come in and go out. And Amadim is a player who wants more control over that kind of thing. So he, instead he goes to Braga as opposed to Benfica. He starts at Braga B at the start of their 2019-2020 season. That's Braga's B team. Um but then he, he's not in that position for very long. And it's not because he gets fired or because he doesn't have the proper coaching license. It's because he gets promoted to the senior team after they sacked their manager two months into the season. So two, two months before the beginning of his senior uh, level career, he's just gotten his, his second, maybe even your first, because Cazapia are not a, a massive, massive Portuguese club. But... Um, He's thrust into this senior level management very, very quickly, and he thrives. He does so, so well for Braga, and he's only there for two and a half months. Again, not because he's sacked, but because he gets poached again, this time by Sporting in March of 2020. Sporting played his... Sporting paid his 10 million euro release clause. That was, at the time, the third most expensive manager ever, and it was for a manager who had spent two and a half months only two and a half months uh, of coaching senior level football. The big question after that, that deal went down understandably was why in the world would sporting aside who at the time were in some turmoil and, 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 and regarded as it's detailed in the athletic regarded something as a place where managers go to die. Why would sporting do that. They were already in this this period of uncertainty. They were in financial trouble. And spending that much money, 10 million euro, on a, a largely unproven manager, on an almost completely unproven manager at the, the top level was a risky, risky move. It was about as risky as it could have drawn up sporting. Um, surely there were more conservative managerial appointments available, but sporting chose to go for the home run and sign the man who showed promise, but didn't have much of a track record at all. And it immediately paid off. Uh, sporting under Ruben Amorim immediately improved. They finished fourth in the league that season. And the next season, the 2020-2021 season, Sporting under Amorim win the Tasa de Liga. And more notably, they win the league for the first time since 2001-2002, a 19-year wait shattered uh, by Ruben Amorim just in his second season as uh, as Sporting's head coach. And now this, this man, Ruben Amorim, is being linked with uh, not just some of the top cl- uh, top coaches in Portugal, but he's being linked with names like Ten Hag and, and Potter as the next big thing in European football management. He's really just burst onto the scene. All three of them, uh, Ten Hag, Potter, and Ruben Amorim, seem destined for a big move sooner rather than later. But 
could the Portuguese who erupted onto the scene in Primera Liga also not just break onto the scene domestically, but also break onto the scene uh, continentally and beat the others to a European giant. He's already got links to some of the big clubs, most notably Manchester United, after Ranić, of course, uh, takes his takes his, his position higher up in the club after he departs this season. And Ruben Amorim is a leading candidate to get that job this summer. Um, let's not discuss Amorim in general, because I, admittedly, I didn't know a whole lot about Ruben Amorim before the last couple of weeks. I knew of him. I knew that his sporting side were exciting and that they were competing uh, on all fronts. But I didn't know a whole lot about him as a, a a coach and more specifically as a person. And upon doing research on this man, I was immediately, immediately impressed. He's got certain intangibles, things that you can't teach, that uh, will prove to be very vital no matter where he goes. He's a player, a coach rather, who wants to be aggressive. Uh, he wants to play on the front foot. He wants to bring the game to his opponent. And that's reflected, of course, in the side's tactics, um, the ability to to press high, the desire to play quickly, setting a high defensive line, um, but also not necessarily in-game. We've been told he's very aggressive in training. He's this emotional man, an emotional manager who excels at connecting with his players, establishing rapports, building relationships. Um, He's a man-manager is is the phrase that we hear so frequently with somebody like Ruben Amorim. And one of the things that I really, really appreciate about him, and this was uh, somewhat obvious when I went back and I watched some of of Sporting's matches under Amorim this season, um, but it was also reported by Sporting... uh, journalists is that Ruman Amanim is, is he doesn't want to overcomplicate things. He doesn't want to come up with this complex network of tactics uh, to try to confuse the opposition because he understands that it's less important for the opposition to be confused by your tactics as it is your own side to understand them, if that makes sense. Um, he, he, is completely okay with and actually excels at keeping his tactics simple to ensure that his own players fully understand what their role is. He'd prefer simple tactics that are fully understood and maybe a bit easier to find out than complex tactics that cause confusion all across the board. And that much is evident in in sporting style of play. It is, on some fronts, a very simple, straightforward style of play, but they execute it to such a degree that it's on their day an unplayable system. So um, what are, are some of the things in this Ruben Amadim sporting that really, really stood out? Well, there's one thing that when you go in and you watch them play, that just immediately jumped off of the page. It was the first thing that I, I actively wrote down, and that's the importance of wingbacks in this system. Ruben Amadim and this sporting side play in a, a 3-4-3 in possession, 5-2-3 out of possession, and everything hinges on the activity of those wingbacks. Um, they've got not just one, but two sets of really talented players that can carry out the responsibilities that uh, Amadim requires his wingbacks to carry out. Nuno Santos and Mateus Reich at left wing back, Pedro Poro and Ricardo Vizcayo over on the right. Um, and they're tasked with a number of, of different responsibilities. It's not as cut and dry as it is in some other tactical systems, um, but most notably, they're instructed to get high up the pitch, almost in line with the opposition's defense and form a W with Sporting's attacking five, the two wing backs and their three forwards. You get the the wingers in Pedro Gonçalves and Pablo Sarabia, who cut infield, sit a bit deeper, and then Paulinho 
pushing up against the center backs creates this, this W shape that Sporting love to use at times, and it's only possible because of, of where the wingbacks play. But they also play a key role in the early phases of the team's buildup, sometimes by sitting a little bit deeper and linking with the team's wide center backs who progress the ball as well, which is usually Mateus Reich, Gonzalo Vinacio. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, every, every, I will say, every single key bullet point laid out in these next 10 or 15 minutes and that I, that I wrote down to begin with comes back to the wingbacks somehow. And whether that's a testament to their importance or just the overall cohesion of Ruben Amarim's system, um, you can make an argument for both. But what is undeniable is the fact that this sporting system, the, the way that it's presented, only works because of all of the different things that these wingbacks are, are asked to do. Um, things like getting down the flank to let attacking players pinch infield. As we mentioned, Gonchalves and Sarabia love to occupy that space in the vertical half spaces between the lines, uh, make runs, hunt for space, and that's possible when the wingbacks can get to the pitch and provide that with. Um, they link with defenders before they put crosses in. They take on their own defenders 1v1, particularly Nuno Santos. Um, but out of possession, it's interesting because... Almost immediately, and this is where this is where I say they're they're asked to carry out a number of different responsibilities because it's it's so it's so quick the way that these sporting wingbacks pivot from playing on the front foot, playing attacking football, pressing up against the opposition's fullback to immediately dropping in line with the back three, creating a five at the back, shifting into that almost immediate five two three system. And sure, sometimes they'll step out and press if if the ball is on the flank, but usually. It's instantaneous that that transition from the wingbacks get it being aggressive, getting high at the pitch to okay, Sporting have lost the ball now. Immediately retreat and organize yourself defensively. We'll talk about Sporting defensively in a bit. It's one of my favorite things about this side: how organized they are uh, defensively. That five-two shape is really really difficult to crack, and those wingbacks play an important role. Um, in in that out of possession, dropping into that that back three, allowing defenders to stay narrow, suffocate opposition forwards, step out of defense if they have to. Uh, they really are a Swiss Army knife, uh, so to speak, in this sporting side. They allow specifically the attacking three and the three center backs to do so many things. Um, we mentioned that compact front three that is only possible because of the presence of the wing backs getting high up the pitch. They love to link with each other. It's usually. And I guess now it might be different because uh, Islam Slavani has come in from Olympique Lyon. Um, but usually it's Paulinho down the middle, Pedro Gonçalves on the right, Pablo Sarabia on the left. And those three love to play close to each other, link with each other. Um, and it's made possible, again, by the play of the wingbacks who can provide the width and allow Sarabia and Gonçalves to play as wide number 10s or inside forwards, whatever you want to call it. Find that space between the lines in the half spaces, that stuff that they love to hunt for. Uh, makes it easier to link with each other and to cause confusion, especially on that confusion point with a player like Gonçalves who cares less about sticking to his position and more about just finding open space. We, the, the comparisons between him and Bruno Fernandes are unavoidable. I think they're going to come just because of the nature of their attacking play and, and, and the fact that they both either were or are at sporting. But in that sense, Gonçalves and, and, uh, Bruno are, are quite similar. They, they just, they hunt for space. They, they care less about sticking to their position and more about finding a, a place in the attacking third where they can exploit the opposition and having a player like Gonçalves in the team who can do that when they've got the other two forwards really, really close to them 
makes him all the more dangerous because this is also a sporting attack that loves to make runs in between defenders and, and have the wingbacks hit early crosses in behind the defensive line. But a key characteristic of that attacking three is the fact that they can kind of occupy all of them in, in a way, the same area, that, that central channel, because the wingbacks are, are holding down the forward and pinning fullbacks wide and creating problems out there. It allows Gonçalves, Sarabia, and Paulinho or Slamani to play with each other. Paulinho is, is um, how, how to characterize Paulinho? He's not uh, such a, a, a elite hold-up play striker that you can get Sarabia and Gonçalves to consistently make runs off of him. But he's one of those strikers that will push up against the defense and can drop into the half space to to quickly link, to, to play one-touch passes, to to ping the ball onto second runs and and, and that type of build-up play. He's not going <laughs> to drop into to a number 10 role and, and muscle his way onto the ball and, and hold it for 10 seconds. Um, but he will play an important role as a quick pivot and then carry on forward and either get into the penalty area or or switch positions with one of the wingers or, or things of that nature. Speaking of those wingbacks still, I, I know I, I said I preceded this with I'm going to speak about them a lot, but they really do allow sporting to do so many different things. Those wingbacks, they kind of they, they move with the ball as the ball progresses up the pitch, which allows them to be effective in all phases of the game. Um, one of my favorite things about the sporting side in uh, is is their buildup, the way that they play out from the back. Usually um, their creation of, of passing triangles all over the pitch that are really made possible. By these these wingbacks, it makes it really difficult for a team to press them high effectively. Uh, part of that is the fact that they play with three center backs, and so if you're going to to press, you have to commit an extra body. And when you bring the wingbacks back as well, then it's nearly fruitless to 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 employ a tactic like that because there are so many different avenues, especially if they position themselves in a certain shape that, that always leaves somebody accessible to the ball player. Um, and that's exactly what this sporting side do under Ruben Amadim is they'll play with their defensive three and they'll usually have the, the two wide center backs. And for this instance, I'll call it Mateus Rice and, and Gucciolo Vinacio because those are the two that usually play at left center back and right center back. They're either in line with the goalkeeper or on the, the corners of the penalty area. And then you get Sebastian Coates, who's the, the captain, wears the captain's armband, plays at the center of that defensive three. He's about 10 yards ahead. So they form a diamond, the, the three center backs, and the goalkeeper. Um, and that's all well and good, but what makes that that shape go from quality to to really, really difficult to 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 win the ball from is that the wingbacks then drop and they play in line with Quatish. So instead of, of having a diamond with the three center backs and the keeper, you've got a W um, with with wingback, Quatish, wingback, and then beneath them the other two center backs and then beneath them the goalkeeper but even still that that two three shape is not where it ends because then you get the two midfielders that pivot and we'll speak about them in a little bit of Joao Polina and Mateus Nunes who will also drop and keep their pivot shape although Nunes likes to to play a bit more advanced than Polina in the later stages of of chance creation but at this phase they'll they'll stick to their pivot shape and and that creates a sort of of 2-3-2 two, two, triangles all over the place. Gonçalves and Sarabia hunt for space in behind. Paulinho pushes against a, a center back, and it makes it really, really difficult for opponents to to 
win the ball back high up the pitch because you play in that 2-3-2, two, two, and I'm going to do quick math. That's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven triangles, maybe. If it's not seven, then I just embarrass myself. Maybe it's more, maybe it's less. But um, it really is an effective tactic for playing out from the back, and it's made possible because of that that five at the back, three at the back shape with the wing backs not getting up the pitch until it's safe for them to do so. Um, and they're not just there as placeholders. Like, they play really, really important parts in this phase of the game. Um, Reese is a left-footed center back, so a lot of times he prefers to play it to the left wing back. Uh, Gonzalo Inacio, uh, oftentimes he'll either play a ball back over the middle to Pelina or Nunes or, or even Quates, or he'll go wide for for usually Pedro Porto is, is playing at, at right wing back. So they're there for a reason, and they create these triangles, and they do a really effective job at that, uh, crucial for the sporting side who, who want to play quickly, but also don't love the idea of, of playing super, super long into the feet or into the chest of somebody like Palino, for example. So that's sporting in possession. And that's all, that's all well and good. Um, it's exciting. It's aggressive. It's quick. Um, but where this Ruben Amodim sporting side really makes its money and where it really, uh, kind of differentiates itself is what they do out of possession defensively. This is a very resolute side out of possession. They have the best defensive record in Primera Liga, 16 goals conceded in 25 matches. And it's, it's mostly, and I alluded to it a little bit earlier, so sorry for the, for the spoiler. Um, but it's mostly thanks to that defensive discipline that Amorim drills into his team, that that five, two block in defense, essentially with, with the wing backs and the three center backs. And then that midfield pivot, it's very, very organized. It provides cover all over the pitch. Uh, the forwards will will backtrack and, and fall in line at a certain point as well. The wingbacks and the midfielders are athletic enough to follow runners, and they provide a really, really quality shield for what is ultimately a balanced defensive three. And that's not to call them perfect. Um, obviously, no defensive system is. But when you when you discuss balance, defensively. I think that that's an important word to 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 use because having bodies is not enough. Just, just having seven bodies in defense is not is not important enough to to keep a good defensive record. If it was that simple, then everybody would play with the shape. But what sporting does so uniquely is they've got this combination of athleticism out on the flanks and that, that pressing ability that you get from the wing backs and, and from somebody like Mateusz Nunes. And you've got your, your, your sentinel, your, your bully in midfield, like Joao Palinha, who, who screens a, a defensive three that is equally as adept as playing the ball out with, with, the wide center backs in, in Asho and Rice as they are winning the ball in the air. That's what Sebastian Quates does so well. And it's a, uh, it's a defense, <clears throat> excuse me. It's a defensive seven that uh, when you look at it as a whole and not just for the individual parts, it really has somebody, if not two or three people that can excel at everything. And that's what makes them so unique is that when they are working together, it's really, really difficult to crack because they all cover up each other's weaknesses. And obviously having more players back there doesn't hurt either. It's not just that 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 block that they use, though, that 5-2 block, because out of possession, the, the sporting defense begins further up the pitch. It begins with the attacking three. It begins with the way that they press, because this is a sporting side that they won't press with... <laughs> 
any more than four or five, they'll rarely press with with anything other than three, unless it's a certain moment in the game. Usually it'll just be the three forwards who press, and then that 5-2 block will sit much deeper. There's actually quite a bit of space in between that attacking three and the rest of the team when they do choose to press. Um, but, But the key is when that line of press is broken, specifically the two wingers immediately retreat and create this this 5-4-1 shape. And it's not always a super aggressive press. In fact, most of the time it isn't. Um, usually it's, uh, um, excuse me, Gonchavez and Pablo Sarabia latching on to each of the center backs. Paulinho will mark the defensive midfielder or the deepest midfielder, whoever's playing there. Um, you'll get the, the wing backs at times up to, to mark the full backs. Maybe occasionally Mateusz Nunes will come up. And if, if they've got uh, the opposition as a double pivot of their own, but um, rarely is it more than just the three attacking players. And in th- sometimes, sometimes oh, a wing back or a, uh, or a player like like Mateusz Nunes. It's a press that's very focused on um, cover shadows as opposed to to running at the ball carrier, making sure that that you're staying in line of passing lanes and slowly progressing towards the ball carrier. Um, the, the it's this kind of blanket press that forces the ball wide. And then once the ball is on the flanks, that's when the wing back springs into action along with a midfielder or the winger on that side of the pitch to go and, and to press the ball carrier on the flank when their passing options are limited. And it proves to be effective. It's one of the staples of, of Ruben Aoudim's sporting is this pressing structure uh, that, again, is not as aggressive as something like maybe a Leeds spoiler for later in the episode, but um, it is very, very effective, e- even with that that space that they leave, the, the attacking three and, and the other seven, there is a space there, but it, it it's almost always negated as soon as that line of press is broken, because you've got the, the wingers who will retreat and turn it into a 5-4-1 quickly. Also, they play a, 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 in a mid-block usually, they play a, an, an unusually high defensive line. So there's not much ground for the wingers to, to make up anyway. Um, but it's also due to the presence of this midfield pivot, which I can't even believe I haven't spoken about yet because this midfield pivot is, is maybe my favorite part of this entire sporting side. Uh, did I, did I say that about anything else? I might've said the, the wingers. I feel like I've said that about three or four things about sporting already, but this is actually my favorite part about the sporting side is this midfield pivot of Mateusz Nunes and Joao Polina, both, understandably receiving interest from some of the biggest clubs in England and in Europe because they work so well together. And we'll start out of possession because that's what we're on now, but they, they play an important role in both. Um, out of possession, we'll see Nunes and Palina sit in a, in a defensive pivot in that 5-2-3, and they, pri- they provide spectacular cover for the defense, particularly Joao Palina. I mean, it's... It's difficult to quantify just how effective Palinia is at winning the ball back, putting in tackles, reading passing lanes, stepping into passing lanes, just winning the ball back however he has to, being physical, being aggressive. It's it's He's a hard-nosed footballer, I think is the best way to describe Joao Palinia. And you can watch, I mean, I don't, I'm not somebody who advocates for going and watching YouTube comps to understand how good a player is, but if you want to understand what Joao Palinia is best at, that trademark bully defensive midfielder that that hint of aggression combined with with this understanding of what attacking players want to do and almost doing it before they do go go and watch a Palinia tape I will allow it this once 
um, because it really is a sight to see how, how good this guy is sitting in front of the back three. But even a player like Mateusz Nunes, who you can argue does more, if not significantly more, for this sporting side in possession by getting into some more advanced positions and making runs from midfield, um, he, he plays an important role as well because sometimes Pelinha will get dragged away from the center of the pitch if he's following a run or following the ball carrier. And then it's Nunes' job to sit in that space and, and kind of be that protection for, for the back three. And so they, they work to get, they work well together on that front. Um, but in possession, it's almost flipped. It's out of possession. It's Nunes' Pelinha's cover in possession. You can argue maybe Pelinha is Nunes' cover. Um, or at least plays more reserved as opposed to out of possession where Nunes kind of sits back and plays a more secondary role to his midfield partner. Um, in possession, we'll see Paulina sit in front of the defense, move the ball side to side, uh, protect against the counter, provide cover. If a center back steps out of the fence, which happens frequently with players like Concello Inacio and Mateus Reich. Um, but in terms of sheer ball progression, he doesn't do a whole bunch in terms of your progressive ball progression. Um, I, I should say positive ball progression. Um, uh, that is more the job of Mateus Nunes, who is the more advanced of the two. Certainly, um, the more, more progressive, the more expansive passing range. But what is really neat about Mateus Nunes is he won't just pass the ball into dangerous areas. He'll, he'll dribble the ball into dangerous areas, but he'll also, make those off the ball runs. He'll provide those, those crucial runs for midfield that sometimes you don't see in a side that play uh, with only two midfielders. But Dej Nunes can do that. And you can argue maybe he has the freedom to that because of how resolute uh, Joao Pelini is defensively and how secure you can feel with him as your, as your midfield partner. But one of the things that I love about Mateusz Nunes is his willingness to make runs into the vertical half spaces and, and split the center backs and find space in the box. And Mateusz Nunes is not a big guy. He's not uh, this, this imposing figure, this giant bulky midfielder. He's, he's smaller, certainly smaller. Maybe, maybe he just looks that way because he's constantly sitting next to Joao Palina, who is a, a beast among men. But you get a player like Mateus Nunes who can be an extra body in the penalty area. He can assist the attacking three. And with the barrage of balls that will come in from the wingbacks for the early crosses or, or whipped in from the byline, uh, Mateus Nunes is an extra body to have there to link with. He loves to get over to the left and link with uh, Nuno Santos or, or if Mateus Reich is playing left wing back, um, he plays a crucial role in terms of, of sporting in the attack. Mateus Nunes linking with your wing back making those runs, making those second man, third man runs, finding open space in the penalty area, um, and being that central ball progressor that every good side needs, even if they do prioritize playing down the flanks, every side needs that good ball cur- ball progressor through the middle. Um, and and Mateusz Nunes is that for, for sporting. So it's a really interesting midfield pivot. They work together very, very well, both in possession and out of possession. And it's one of the things that makes this side so much fun to watch. It is the timing of, of speaking about sporting is, is a bit odd. I will admit, um, just because of the battering that they took against Manchester city. And it's like, Oh, we're talking about them after they've been waxed by maybe the best or the second or third best club in Europe. But, um, if that was your introduction to sporting, if that that 5-0 defeat against Manchester City was your introduction to Ruben Amadim and, and to his version of sporting, uh, please don't let it be because it, it really is a fascinating side. And at their best, they are, are so much fun to watch. And they're thickly in the title race in uh, Primera Liga again. Um, 
just a, a, a fun, forward-thinking, aggressive side. And and you're going to want to watch it now because who knows how much longer we'll be able to say Ruben Amodim Sporting with how heavily he's being linked with some other objectively bigger jobs in Europe. So that is a little bit about Ruben Amodim being described as potentially, quote, football's next super coach. Uh, is that accurate? Only time will tell. But a move to a big European club seems imminent. Just three years removed from getting suspended for a year and causing his club to take a six-point deduction in the table for not having proper coaching documentation. What a 180 for uh, for that man, the 38-year-old Ruben Amadim, and doing it at a club that he was raised to dislike. Uh, it's, it's such an interesting plot point, isn't it? Is this guy played for Benfica, rooted for Benfica, um, and now he's bringing sporting. He's already brought sporting, their first league title in 19 years, but now he's, he's bringing sporting to a level that they haven't been at in quite a long time. Um, they also won the Tasa de Liga this season as well. So they're, they're back-to-back Tasa de Liga champions. Uh, can't shake a stick at that at all. So that's that's a little bit about Ruben Amonim. And if you're a, a returning listener, you already know uh, how bad I am at segueing topics. So let's just do it. Let's talk about Leeds and Marcelo Bielsa. Because after a posting, let, let's call it what it is, after posting <laughs> what was one of the... We'll call it one of, out of respect for Marcelo Bielsa. After posting what was one of the worst, <laughs> the worst months in Premier League history, my goodness, uh, Marcelo Bielsa was sacked as Leeds United manager. Uh, the defense was the football's equivalent of Swiss cheese. I believe if my math was correct, they conceded 20 times, 20 different times. They can, they conceded a goal in February, which if, if my sources are correct, uh, my sources being the internet is the most that a club have ever conceded in a calendar month. And you know what, what hurts more is that they did in the shortest month, the 28 day month. And and it was it's the record for most goals conceded in a calendar month, and they did it in a in a fake month. They did it in half of a month. Unbelievable. Twenty goals in twenty eight matches, uh, twenty eight game, twenty eight days. Excuse me. Uh, regardless, uh, joking aside, it, it was kind of at at a point where you felt like if Bielsa was was not going to get sacked mid-season. He was going to get sacked at the end of the season. But at the same time, I think it was pretty commonly understood that Bielsa would get to stay until the end of the season if he wanted to. Um, he had earned that. I think it was kind of what we understood to be the situation at Ellen Road. At Ellen Road. Ultimately, and evidently, that was not the case. After losing to Spurs 4-0, Marcelo Bielsa got the boot, got the sack, um, and he was out the door in place of the American, Jesse Marsh. And the response to Bielsa's exit was overwhelming. And it was interesting because instead of, of thanking the Lord for the praising of an underwhelming manager who dragged their club into a dogfight, which is what you would typically expect in, in today's football, Leeds fans reacted quite the opposite. It was it was praise. It was care. It was uh, sometimes with vigor towards the, the the club's hierarchy. It was the 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 reaction to Marcelo Bielsa's departure is not what you would typically expect from a club who's just sacked its manager in 16th place. 
Um, but Bielsa at Leeds was different. And I think we all knew that it was different, even if you weren't specifically a Leeds fan. And especially if you were a Leeds fan, you knew that there was this different aura surrounding Marcelo Bielsa at Ellen Road. It was almost like a spectacle, I think it is an interesting word to use because, it, and, you know, maybe this sounds a little bit uh, performative or, or, or sensational, but when Leeds were promoted, People were excited because of the football, of course, and because they had played so well the season prior in the championship. But I think a lot of people were just excited because it was we were hearing all about this this Bielsa ball, this different style of play that would be something that the Premier League had never seen before. And um, that transcends football. I think that that concept transcends football. In, in a certain way. And so when Bielsa was dismissed, this outpouring of support that he received, I don't think surprised many people. Um, let's look at this by the numbers uh, before we discuss Marcelo Bielsa himself. By the numbers, it makes sense, right? Leeds were 16th in the league when Bielsa was dismissed, had just conceded 20 goals in February, the most in any calendar month in the history of the Premier League. On paper, you can certainly make the argument that it was time to go. But if the dismissal itself still felt like a surprise. And it did. I think to a lot of people, it did feel like a surprise. Uh, the response to it wasn't. And it's because of that connection that Bielsa has with lead supporters. Um, the Athletic ran a poll, uh, kind of an exit poll after Bielsa was, was sacked among Leeds United supporters, uh, just gauging their, where, where they are on the situation. And it's really incredible how, how Leeds fans seem to be more, uh, invested in Marcelo Bielsa and attached to Marcelo Bielsa than they were to the club's performance. And that's not to say that they didn't care about the club's performance, but uh, for example, 61% said that if Leeds stay up, it wouldn't feel the same as it would have with Marcelo Bielsa. That's a staggering number. 61% of, of Leeds fans, three in five, say that if they stay up, it wouldn't feel the same now because Bielsa's gone. 70% call him a top two Leeds manager of all time. Just 1% leaves him outside the top three entirely. And this is a historic club. This is a club with the European trophy. This is uh, not your your neighborhood backyard club with uh, that, that that's in the Premier League for the first time. This is a, a big, big club. And 1% of Leeds fans leave him outside the top three. That's the impact that he left. 41% of Leeds fans thought he deserved another season if he wanted to stay. Um, that's nearly half. This type of loyalty to a manager in a relegation scrap is really, really unusual. Um, and what made him so special, and the reason why Leeds fans feel so attached to him, is yes, it's his unique style of play, but it also speaks to Bielsa's relationship to the club and to the fans. So let's chat about both, because you can't discuss Marcelo Bielsa's tactics and his importance to Leeds without discussing Marcelo Bielsa off the pitch. So let's discuss why this relationship was so fruitful and why it was so important and valued by members of the Leeds United community, including tactics, but also including things other than tactics. Um, on the pitch, I think this is a good place to start. On the pitch, uh, Bielsa and Leeds, they created something that the league kind of envied in a way, I think. Um, the, the, something for the Premier League to be jealous of. And that's not to say that, that the other 19 clubs were praying that they had Bielsa ball and that they could play like Leeds. But there was something about Bielsa and Leeds that, that felt different. No matter where they went after they were promoted, Leeds, they were a top ticket anywhere. Uh, they, they were a, a, a must-see 
certainly at the start of the season, but in general, they, they were a top ticket at Anfield, at the Etihad, at Old Trafford. They, they were a club that people wanted to watch because it was different. It gave Leeds this, this sense of pride when watching their club, knowing that they generated this type of intrigue that Bielsa created. And that's everything from the style of play to the tiny ticks, like the pacing on the touchline or sitting on a water cooler in a full track suit. Um, things, they were things that made Leeds different from everyone else in the league. And for a big club, as I mentioned, Leeds are a big club that had been languishing in the championship for 16 years. That was important. Um, it was important to have that, 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 I don't know that that unique factor because Leeds at the end of the day are also a club that that don't consider themselves to be like other clubs, and having that that difference that that thing that made them special was crucial. Um, the Athletic, uh, it's called the Phil Hay Show on the Athletic. It's it's this episode in particular. It's a, it's a group of Leeds supporters just discussing about Bielsa and, and the impact he left, and that's a point that they were eager to make is that it, it gave the league something to be jealous of this relationship uh, between Bielsa and Leeds, not just the fans, but the, the style of play. Um, and again, we'll speak about him as a football coach in a few minutes, but what tied him to the fan base and to the community so tightly was uh, not even his tactics. It was more just him as a person, which is, as I'm going to try to not use past tense as much as possible because he's not dead. Marcelo Bielsa is very much alive and well. But it's going to be hard not to use past tense because when I, I'm going to be talking about like Bielsa was like because the time at Leeds is over, but it's going to sound like he's dead. I'll try to use present tense, but um, sometimes it might sound weird when referencing his Leeds tenure because it is at the end of the day over. But anyway, what what made him so close to the fan base is who he was as a person, which is why Leeds may have been so content with sticking with him for better or for worse, even if worse won out, even if it was for worse, uh, they were comfortable with, with giving Marcelo Bielsa the reins. Um, Bielsa, he was in it for the football at Leeds. He wasn't in it for the, for the fanfare or the money or the endorsements. He didn't want to be praised as some footballing God. And he still doesn't No, no matter how many times Leeds supporters tried to draw that comparison between <laughs> Marcelo Bielsa and God, uh, of course, Bielsa is a, a devout Catholic man, so he he dislikes those comparisons to begin with, but he cared about the, the football and only football, and every other part of his life he tried to keep as normal as possible. He wasn't as, he isn't, that's how many he's present tense, he isn't a celebrity in his own eyes. He's a football coach, and everything else that he tries to do is as anybody else would. We hear stories all the time of Bielsa going for his morning stroll, picking up the newspaper and just walking around his neighborhood. And is, of course, in, in that full lead United tracksuit, but just acting as if he's just another member of the community, him and his coaching staff having tactical meetings in a local coffee shop, uh, all of course in, in their Leeds tracksuits. This desire to live as any other resident of Leeds is one of the many things that makes Marcelo Bielsa so unique and so so loved by this Leeds community. They felt like he was one of them. Um, he would never try to big time anyone or act like some massive figure, even though he has every right to. Uh, every time he was stopped by someone in the neighborhood, he signs, he takes photos, he does anything they requested. That understanding of what it means for the common fan, I think is important. Um, he also understands how important football is in the lives of so many fans and how one tiny gesture, taking a photo or signing a, a football or a Jersey, or just saying hello and having a chat 
that's a few seconds out of his day, but it's a lifelong memory for for the other person, for the fan. It's and and, and Bielsa understands that he he strives to do things like that. Um, it, it's it's his impact on the, on the community as well. His impact on that Leeds community. There are murals of Bielsa's face all over Leeds, and there's a reason for it. It's not just because he's a good football coach. Surprise, surprise. It's because he he does so much in that Leeds community, visiting the children's hospitals, helping homeless people. But he did it because it was the right thing to do and not for good PR. Yeah, he tried as hard as he could to keep things like that out of the news cycle. He went out of his way to say, don't tell people about this. Every time he signed a, a, a footballer, took a picture, he said, don't sell this on on eBay. Don't don't post this on social media. Don't make a big deal out of it. Um, he understands that football is for the fan. And uh, one of my favorite things that one of my favorite quotes from Marcelo Bielsa, which came about um, or, or resurfaced at the very least during the, the first wave of European Super League chat is the beautiful thing about our game is that on any day the weak can defeat the powerful. That understanding that football is about much, much more than just money uh, is on full display whenever Bielsa interacts with his Leeds community. He prioritized that connection, that that importance to the fan, that understanding that that football comes first. And he gives that power to fans. There's a fantastic story that I, I heard about in a TIFA video about how when – uh, Bielsa arrived at Leeds. He forced his players to do three hours of cleaning up trash around the ground so they could appreciate what a fan has to do to get tickets to come and watch them. That that uh, not to insinuate or imply that every fan is is a garbage worker, but the the act of of, of labor to to generate wealth and buy tickets to go to Leeds and watch these players. He wanted to make sure his players understood the importance of that. Even after he was sacked. I mean, he could have left. He, he could have picked up his things and, and gone back to Rosario and lived his life as he's been trying to do. But even after he was sacked, there, there's videos of, of him outside the ground, outside Ellen Road, signing autographs, uh, signing, signing jerseys, signing footballs, taking photos, having chats, and just just acting like somebody in the Leeds community. And that's that's what really that, that's one part of what made this Bielsa and Leeds relationship so, so special, because so often uh, that relationship between manager and, and fan base is transactional, right? It's contracts are short. Managers bounce around. Um, there's an understanding that that, yes, you want to do the fans well. But at the end of the day, Sometimes managers are there just to, to, to sign the contract, to be in, in management. But it wasn't like that with, with Bielsa, or at least it didn't feel like that with Bielsa and Lee. They were the complete antithesis, that marriage, to that, that theory that the, the manager-club relationship is strictly transactional. Um, not only did Bielsa stick around at Leeds for, what, three, four seasons, but there was hardly a rumor that he was linked elsewhere. I you know, he could have, I'm sure, in theory, he could have gone and, and managed somewhere else. He certainly had the uh, the pedigree and the resume to do so. But not only did he not leave, there was hardly ever any rumors of him leaving. And whether that's because he, in private, shot them all down or if clubs just knew that he'd be off limits to begin with because of this bond that he has with Leeds United, it was it was really uh, something, it was a sight to behold, this this kind of weird relationship that you don't see much in, in modern day football anymore. Um, 
Bielsa is as, as I think the, the, a good phrase for Bielsa is puro football. He, he's as puro football as they come, pure football. Um, he's a football man. He, he, he loves it. And it, it, you, you can see it with his relationship with the community, but you can also see it in his tactics. Now, we'll, we'll speak about that a little bit more because at the end of the day, this is a tactical podcast. Um, but Bielsa, is, he's a football man. He's a, he's a football mind. And that's so, so clear. There are stories of him watching 10 hours of football a day as a kid. There's, of course, he, he's one of the pioneers of, of opposition analysis, video analysis. He's, uh, there's stories of him scouting thousands of players before selecting a squad of 20, doing full analyses of squads before he signs on to a new job. This is somebody who lives and breathes the game. Um, and, and he treats it with respect as well. And uh, Derby County fans might disagree with me, but... Um, there's a story, uh, well, it's not really a story as much as it is uh, a moment. Um, and I, if you, if you follow English football, I'm sure you remember when Leeds were still in the championship, it's a testament to the reverence that, that Bielsa treats the game with is, um, this story it's Leeds and Aston Villa late in the season, a Villa player goes down and stays down. Of course, in that instance, it's, it's the opposition's decision to choose whether they want to play on or stop play. Most of the time they'll stop play, but Leeds choose to play on. Uh, they score, of course, as it would, chaos ensues. Um, this cagey match just flipped on its head. Uh, a Villa player shown a red card. I mean, it's, it's, it's mayhem at Ellen Road. And Leeds are, are now ahead 1-0. And they, they cut away to Marcelo Biaza, who is just complete. He's livid. He's apoplectic. <laughs> on the sideline, but he's not yelling at a referee or Aston Villa. He's yelling at his own team. He, he's yelling at, at his, he's yelling something at his leads, at his leads players. And you can read his lips and it's something along the lines of give the goal, give the goal. And of course, Bielsa is not a, a fluent English speaker. He has his translator to, to, he, he is very stubborn, I guess you could say in that sense. And that he, in, in four years, he only did an interview in Spanish. Um, but it was interesting to see him shouting and, and hollering in English to his players, give the goal. And for a moment, you're like, well, what does that mean? What is what is Bielsa telling his players? And then as soon as the ball is kicked off, we see Aston Villa, the, the Leeds players stand still. And Bielsa essentially told Leeds to, to give Villa the goal back because it was a cheap goal to take while the Villa player was down. Um and that's not something you would really ever see. It's not something I'd ever seen before. Uh, and, and even before the goal was given, we, we saw the leads, leads players following orders, not giving the goal or not, not defending the goal, excuse me. But we saw Pontus Janssen, who was playing for Leeds at the time, try to defend. He, he tried to take the ball off the Assenville player's foot. And of course, Villa scored regardless. But instead of, of the players siding with Pontus Janssen and saying, you know what, good on you for, for playing, they, they chewed him out. They got in his ear for defying orders. And so that, that's a story of just the, the, the respect that Bielsa had for the game, but also the respect that his players had for him and, and his orders. And, and it, it, that, that, I don't know, it, it's such a, a fantastic story. I love to go and recount it because um, it's not something you would ever see in, in the modern game, I think, at least at the top level, like in the championship in the Premier League. So um, Marcelo Bielsa, fully a Leeds man. The reason why I spend so much time speaking about this part of it is because when we speak about Bielsa and specifically his relationship with Leeds, it's important that we include all of that um, because it's it, the story is incomplete 
if we speak about Bielsa's leads and just talk about what they were on the pitch. There's so much off the pitch that made this relationship so special and in theory might have kept around for as long as it did because he was a leads man through and through. He was, of course, Argentinian, born and raised in Rosario, but he was a leads man through and through. Um, and you could clearly see that both on and off the pitch. But tactically, the, there was this tactical independence, this tactical uniqueness that Bielsa carried with him as well. And he's just as unique on the pitch as he is off of it. And, and you know, if, if you watch leads for 10 minutes under Bielsa, you, you can figure this out. It's everything about Bielsa's leads. It's just so aggressive, so high energy. Um you can a team might out talent leads, but they will never out effort leads. I think it's the best way to describe Bielsa, uh, Bielsa's version of this Leeds United team in possession or out of possession. Everything that Leeds did was at a rapid tempo, and when it worked, it was a joy to watch because, as I mentioned, it was something that the league had never seen before. But also, it, it took uh, you know modern thinking about the game, about about defensive structure and attacking movements, and kind of just just flipped it on its head, punted it all out the window because what they did was 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 unique in the sense that that they prioritized energy and pace and and being quick um and chaotic almost. Chaotic is is a, a kind of a good word to use to describe Bielsa's leads. It's chaotic. But it's just it's a joy to watch. And Leeds finished ninth in their first season back in the Premier League using these tactics. And so what are some of these of these bullet points of Bielsa's leads? Well, the first thing is is relentless pressing, and that doesn't come as news to anybody. Uh, it's this relentless pressing structure that uh, will tire out anybody who is in it, but also anybody playing against it, because it's it's ninety minutes of just relentless aggression and energy, tireless players who want to press defenders high, win the ball back as quickly as possible, create counterattacking opportunities using this man to man marking system that, when used correctly, and pretty much every single passing option for uh, for the ball carrier. And it's, again, it's performed with this energy that was rare in the top flight of English football. But it wasn't just aggression on the on the pace front. It was aggression on the physical front as well because it, it, it's, it's a team that's loaded with physical players who aren't afraid to lunge into a tackle either. And those two things go hand in hand, I think, with aggression in football, specifically aggression with Bielsa's leads is, yes, you need to be aggressive pressing the ball and aggressive and trying to win it back. But also once they've broken that press and once they're progressing the ball up the pitch and, and you might be out of, out of shape, aggression also applies to either going in and, and winning the ball back or going in and stopping play to allow your team to get back into shape. It's aggression. Aggression takes multiple different forms in this, this version of Leeds United that Marcelo Bielsa orchestrated. And it worked for years, um, for years. It worked for what, two or three years. I don't, I wouldn't say it worked this year because He's, I mean, he's gone, obviously, but um, I, I think you'd, you'd it, it's certainly safe to say it worked for, for two or three years. The last year in the Premier League and the year that Leeds won promotion and the, the year prior, even when they made the promotion playoff, it worked. Um, but interestingly, I think what ended up doing Bielsa in at Leeds and what ended up uh, leading to, to his marching orders is his insistence on not changing. Um and that's the one thing that Bielsa has kind of always taken with him is that stubbornness to do things his way on the pitch specifically. Uh, and the, the, the insistence on, on doing it that way almost, and maybe stubborn is an unfair word to use because it has, it had worked for so long, but this season specifically, you can certainly draw it up as, as this stubborn play, but Bielsa doesn't know any other way to play. He wants to play the way that he knows how to play. Um, and anything else is, is, is not on the table. It's not possible. 
um, because it became clear that this this high energy, high pressure system was no longer working. But again, it's a trait that's followed by also since before his time at Leeds. Um, and I think the the one counter argument is injuries. Of course, Leeds were were stricken with injuries. Patrick Bamford has missed most of the season. Calvin Phillips is the most important player in this Leeds side, and he's been out for a decent amount of time. Um, but still, even even with that injury crisis, we didn't see Leeds' system change much. It, it Towards the end of his tenure, it got a bit more conservative. Maybe that's Bielsa acknowledging that Robin Koch is not the defensive midfielder that Calvin Phillips is. Um, but it, 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 still, it still felt like a very, very strict, uh, unchanging system when it became obvious at a point that it wasn't really working anymore. And of course, hindsight is a powerful tool. So we can look at this in 2020 hindsight vision and understand what the problems were, even if we weren't able to, to diagnose them in real time. But I, you can argue even that the, the way that Leeds played almost served as a Band-Aid to the bigger cracks. It was that, that high-octane uh, pressing structure that – uh, you know, the, the, the press, ha- aggressive pressing rather, has a really interesting relationship with with space and, and creating it out of possession, right? Because if you're going to specifically press man-to-man and press aggressively, you're going to open up space in behind. You're going to open up pockets pockets of space for the opposition to exploit. But the the that's a risk that you're willing to take. And the trade-off is that well, yes, you're opening up the space behind you, but the point is to win the ball back before the opposition has a chance to read what's in front of them and play the ball into that space anyway. So it's it's a gamble when, when you're pressing as, 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 as uh, aggressively as leads do, but you're, you're rolling the dice and hoping that it lands on the opposition not having a chance to play into the space that you're opening by, by pressing as aggressively as you are. And that worked for however long, but whether it was this injury crisis or Premier League sides getting used to playing against Leeds, it'll have been for most teams a third and fourth times they've played Leeds um, in in the Premier League this season. Of course, the only exception would be the clubs that got promoted a season ago. Um, whatever it was, that press was no longer effective uh, at the same rate that it was last season. And it's obvious when you look at, at their goals conceded numbers, particularly in the month of February and particularly against the big clubs. Leeds were horrible against the traditional big six in the Premier League. They, oh gosh, where are the numbers? Um, they were, they've been outscored 38-7. <laughs> are you kidding me? Sorry. They've been outscored 38-7 against the big six clubs under Bielsa. And obviously those are the teams with the most technical quality. Those are the teams that, that well, on paper, should at least have the most technical quality. The ones that are the most individually talented, the ones that if you're going to break an aggressive press, you back it to be one of those teams to do so. But um, that, that, that plan started to falter against lesser sides as well. And uh, we started to see this, this system that Bielsa employed not work not just against the big clubs but against the smaller ones as well Um, and that gamble that he consistently took with pressing aggressively and hoping that the opposition didn't uh, exploit the space that gamble went from from paying off mostly to uh, losing very very much especially towards the end of, of his his tenure but again that's uh that's Bielsa ball and when you when you have a manager who is as loyal to his system 
and as ingrained in his ways as Marcelo Bielsa is, you live by it and you die by it. And Leeds lived by it for three years and they made some spectacular memories. Uh, but ultimately, it is, I think, what did them in is, is Bielsa's inability to to alter and to change his tactics. And, and uh, on one front, it's admirable, his desire and his insistence on trying to get what he knows to work as opposed to changing uh, what his team does. But on another front, uh, the best managers in the world are ones that can adapt when uh, what they do does not work. And unfortunately for Marcelo Bielsa, unfortunately for Leeds, that is not what uh, what the reality was for most of the 2021-2022 season. They should stay up. I think Leeds will be fine. Like I don't think they're going to go. I don't think they're going to go down. I think you can lock in. No disrespect. You can lock in Norwich and Watford to be relegated. I think is safe. And then I think that 18th fight will be a scrap between Burnley and Everton because uh, Everton's remaining schedule is just so unbelievably difficult. But also, I, you know, you, 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 you bring in a new manager, you get that new manager bump. I, I really do rate Jesse Marsh highly, despite how his tenure with RB Leipzig went. Um, this is a lead side with quality. They'll get Bamford and Phillips back eventually. Of course, Rafinha is a wildly exciting player. I think Leeds will be fine. Um, I don't think they'll they'll get stuck in the drop zone, but uh, this is still a side that will likely need to ask some big, big questions in the summer um, as to how they should move on and how much of Bielsa ball they will retain for year three in the Premier League if they make it that far. Um, but at the end of the day, Bielsa and Leeds, unfortunately, it came to an unceremonious end. I'm sure it did not end the way most Leeds fans expected it to, but that does not take away the unique nature and the the almost inspirational nature of the relationship that Bielsa had with his club and with the fans of that club. Because again, it really is something that we don't ever see in modern football anymore. So um, will Bielsa coach again? Certainly not in the Premier League. I'd be shocked if he took a Premier League job. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if he went back to South America and coached there. But uh, I can assure that no matter where he goes next, it will be uh, exciting. Must watch football for better or for worse, as it has always been with uh, with Marcelo Bielsa. Um, so that's that. Let's let's pivot once more to our final segment of the episode, and we're at an hour and one minute which is a lot. Um, usually these things are 50 minutes max. You know what I do is I, I write all my notes and I assume that I'm going to, I always think that I'll say less than I do. Well, yes, I, I assume that I'll say less than I do. But the thing is I, I write down these notes and then I go on tangents and some of them are, are good and some of them are just alphabet soup. Um, but then 40 planned minutes turns into an hour and one minute. So if you've made it this far, fair play to you. You're a legend. Uh, let me know. Um, but we're going to jump into Bet the Bank. And again, if you're a returning listener who was with us at the start, you know what Bet the Bank is. Um, if you're a new listener or even a relatively new listener, because I don't think we've had a Bet the Bank uh, in a long, long time. Um, Bet the Bank essentially is – backstory on me. I love, I love young talent. I love learning about who the next – players in a generation will be as opposed to who the players are now and bet the bank is a segment a quick little segment five minutes ten minutes max that i try to throw in at the end of the episode that uh highlights 
a, a next gen player, essentially. Some of, of the Bet the Bank graduates, so to speak, have been the likes of Dominic Sobitzlai. That was episode one, and I wanted I wanted kind of a toss up for that one. But Sobitzlai has been mentioned on uh, on Bet the Bank. Players like uh, Karim Adiemi have been mentioned in Bet the Bank. Well, was it Adiemi or was it? Yes, it was definitely Adiemi. Um, I forget if I if I use Mohamed Kamara in Bet the Bank. Ricardo Pepe I mentioned in Bet the Bank. Um, for the first time in Bet the Bank history, we're going to go to Serie A. We're going to go to Italy because there is a player currently at Torino who is very, very intriguing. And his name is Samuele Ricci at, uh, at Torino. As I mentioned, uh, Ricci is another one of these Another one of this uh, Italian uh, uh, conga line. That's not the phrase I'm looking for. Supply supply line? Conveyor belt? I don't know. I don't know what I'm looking for. But my, my point is that there are so many young midfielders coming through Italian football, particularly in Serie B, actually, who are destined for something very, very big. Some of those names in that supply line, of course, you, you can speak about Sandro Tonali at uh, AC Milan, but uh, even younger than that, players like Nicolo Rovella, Giacomo Raspadori, uh, Davide Fratesi. There are so many young Italian midfielders who are emerging and playing important roles for Serie A sides. Um, and Ricci might be, truthfully, the most exciting of the lot. This is a player who's represented Italy regularly at every single youth level. He played a massive role in ensuring Empoli's promotion uh, to Serie A last season, and then he moved to Torino in January. Um, what makes Ricci special? I'll, I'll try to make it kind of brief because it is, um, although it is a podcast, it, you know, there's no time limit, but still, you know, I, I have I have reference for my fans. I, 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 I but still, uh, I, I have respect for my listeners. Um, I'm sure there's other things that you lot would like to do, even even if this is the highlight of your day, which I'd be stunned if it was. But if it is, I appreciate you. I'm sure that you all have lives to live outside of the tactics room. Um, Ricci is, is your typical, I can, you can't even say typical, because it's tough to profile Ricci as a player. Um, before he moved to Torino, he was playing as the deepest midfielder in a 4-3-1-2 at Empoli that kind of deep-lying playmaker, maybe, but it's even still that that characterization doesn't fully fit a player who is as well-rounded as uh, as Samuel Ricci is. Um, he's been described as a mezzala at times, which, of course, is, is a more advanced, sometimes wide midfielder, almost unique to Italian football. Um, the thing is, is Ricci can play really <laughs> any role effectively. And of course he's better in some places than others, but, um, you can stick him almost anywhere and, and he will be fine. And a big part of that is this combination of, of strength and physicality with technical ability. That's almost deceptive. It almost deceives uh, the eye. He's six feet tall, but he's got this spectacular technical ability. He's very confident in tight spaces uh, at, at controlling the ball, maneuvering the ball. And, and because of that, he's able to draw fouls with that combination of control and strength. Um, but he's also, he's a strong dribbler, strong passer of the ball. Uh, he's not somebody who's going to rack up assists. He's not spectacular in the attacking half or the final third. He's not putting final balls in um, like maybe a traditional Metella would, but he, he's, 
he, he's burdened more with early phases of ball progression and, and chance creation. He completes 93% of his short passes, 95% of his uh, medium passes. And the reason why, why he is better likely for a role deeper in midfield is because he won't opt for the risky pass, but he's, he'll rather opt for the safer one to start the moves, which is not an inherent flaw. That's not a bad thing uh, with a midfielder, unless it's handicapping them with for it it doesn't um, because that's the responsibility is to play the ball wide or or dink it over for a player in a more advanced position. Um, But what, what makes Ricci kind of unique is that, among other things, is he's keen to carry the ball forward as well. He, he can progress the ball in a number of different ways. Um, 80th percentile in total and progressive distance carried. These stats, of course, come from FB ref. And so while Rigi is not a midfielder who's going to rack up 10 assists a season and 30 key passes and, and be busy in the final third, he is still a player who can, who can uh, impact the, the sides build up in a number of different ways because he is so adept passing wise. Um, but he also can run forward. And of course that technical ability, that ball control, um, it kind of makes it easier for him when he is marching forward to, to keep control of the ball and, and potentially get himself out of trouble. If he gets into it, um, out of possession, he's also, he's also a tidy tackler. Um, which is why I say he, he kind of does a little bit of everything is he's not strictly a ball progressor or a defensive midfielder, um, but he, he's very all round. And that's why it's kind of tough at this age to pin him down uh, out of possession, 94th percentile in percent of dribblers tackled uh, at, at 50%. He doesn't get run at very frequently. This is the reason why um, like his, his dribblers tackled numbers and his uh, an attempted dribbler. No, um, yes, his dribblers tackle numbers and his his number of times dribbled at numbers are, are staggeringly low for a player who plays in the center of the park. But he doesn't get run at because he's so good at 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 uh, inter at, at tackling players running at him. Um, and just winning the ball back in general, 5.09 tackles and interceptions per 90. That's good for 85th percentile among midfielders. Um, it, it, the bottom line is just he reads oppositions very, very well. He intercepts specifically at a rate that's nearly unparalleled in Serie A. And he's only 20 years old. Again, at Torino on loan from Empoli. Uh, but don't expect him to be at Empoli for much longer because in a generation where Italy are, are, are pumping out so many quality midfielders, including ones that are more established at this point, players like uh, uh, Nicolo Barella, players like Memo Locatelli, uh, you've still got this younger crop of midfielders like Tonali, like Rovella, like Ricci, who are... are really going to make waves, I think, sooner rather than later. Um, and, and again, Ricci might be the best of the bunch. So that is Bet the Bank. Uh, I can't tell you what number, but that is our Bet the Bank for episode number 14. And that will do it for episode number 14. So thankful, as always, to every single one of you who chose to tune in, especially for those of you who are now listening one hour, 10 minutes, and two seconds in. You're all a bunch of bloody legends, and I appreciate each and every one of you. If you appreciated what you heard, and if you enjoyed what you heard on this episode of The Tactics Room, please be sure to, uh, first of all, follow uh, myself and follow Breaking the Lions on Twitter. My handle is at WillFowler5. It'll be in the description of this episode. Also, follow Breaking the Lions on uh, on Twitter at BTLVid. Also, follow Breaking the Lions on Instagram, because uh, I, I forgot, but we created that account a few months ago, and 
it, uh, it, let's get some traction on it. What do you say? Let, let, let's, uh, let's make Breaking the Lines a multi-platform brand by, by growing that Instagram account. So go and follow them there. Um, also, check out our website, www.breakingthelines.com. If you enjoyed what you heard here, you will love what you can read every single day over there. There is <laughs> genuinely, and this is not even meant as hyperbole or exaggeration, an endless amount of content on that website my goodness are there so many articles over there it's really spectacular um a lot of the research that i do on uh for these episodes i get from our our previous breaking the lines articles because for the love of god there's so many talented writers at at this this brand for for this website and, and every single one of them has created something really 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 cool so go and check out our website www.breakingthelines.com follow myself on twitter at willfowlerfire follow breaking the lines on twitter at btlvid if you liked what you heard subscribe to this podcast where you get your podcasts from this is not the only this is not the only podcast on breaking the lines we've got several others um one that I used quite heavily for this episode is Cortelinias. That is our Portuguese football podcast, but also podcasts like Arayati Rigore, which is our Italian football podcast, podcasts like Casinelinias, which is our French football podcast. Um, so many, so many different things to choose from. So, so you're going to find something you like. So subscribe to your podcasts here. You can listen to all of them there. Um, and you're not going to want to miss it. I will see you right back here next week for episode 15 of the Tactics Room. What are we going to chat about? It's anybody's guess. It's literally anybody's guess. If you have any recommendations, feel free to tweet at me, DM me, whatever. Whatever you want to hear about, uh, let me know. Um, I'll have some ideas of my own. But if there's anything specific, please reach out and, uh, and let me know. Until then, thank you all so, so much for listening. You're all legends, as I mentioned. My name is Will Fowler. You've been listening to the Tactics Room podcast presented by Breaking the Lines.